1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is September 30th. It is a Friday. This is episode 700. 53 of the survival podcast, and since it's Friday, 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 you know what that means. We're going to take your calls to 86665. Think again, 86665. T H I N K. I'm going to tell you this: if you called more than a month ago and you haven't heard your call on the air yet, it might be time to recall. I can't get all the calls on the air anymore. It used to be if you emailed me, you had a good chance of getting on the air, and then it got to where you know you had maybe a one in ten chance, and now it's probably one in twenty. And if twenty people email me the same. Thing. You know it's going to be on the air when it's a hot issue. Um, with the calls, it lasted a lot longer because there were less calls than emails. I now I'm probably getting not a tremendous amount of calls, four to five calls a day, but that's uh, that's twenty a week, and I do about ten a weekly show, so that's twice as many as I can cover. Um, and I would say it's probably a little more than that on some periods. So just understand that if I haven't gotten your call on the air yet, I'm trying to do the best I can. And sometimes, you know, if the call has poor audio quality or there's background noise, I discard it as part of the screening process. So more than a month old, you may want to recall. All right. Uh, before we take your calls, let's take care of our housekeeping. Let's take care of those sponsors, folks. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, KnifeKits.com. You know, if you want to learn to make your own knives, KnifeKits is the place to go. They're uh, they're rock solid folks, man. I-, I reached out to some of the sponsors and said, hey, why don't you guys send me some stuff out to Salt Lake for the uh, the conference that I'm going to be at, the uh, Self Reliance Expo. Knife Kits is sending me two kits uh, with associated handle material for the kits and an instructional DVD. So I'll be giving away two packets of stuff from Knife Kits to people out in Salt Lake as door prizes to the whole expo. Uh, and that little packet would do everything you need to know to be able to make a fixed blade knife. Because you've got the instructional video, you've got the kit, you've got the handle material, you need some basic hand tools, you can do that. And it can be that simple. Or if you're a master bladesmith, maybe you just want raw Damascus steel to make something really cool or something exotic, uh, like hanging around my neck right now is a knife with mammoth tusk handle. Uh, that handle material came from knifekits.com. So no matter where you are in the spectrum of wanting to learn and build and develop as a knife, uh, as a knife crafter, uh, you can do that at knifekits.com best source I know of glad to have them as a sponsor next up today Sawtooth Tactical hey SawTac sending something out in Salt Lake City as well they're these uh, titanium sports they're awesome I should have told uh, should have told them to send one extra one so I could have kept one of them uh, he's the only distributor of them in the United States that's just one example of the tactical quality of Sawtooth Tactical SOE tactical gear uh, Magpul magazines and everything else you can think of real fast shipping they almost always throw something extra in if you tell them hey I found out about you guys on the survival podcast a hank, a rope or something like that you know you never know what it's going to be but do let them know you uh, found them at the survival podcast check out sawtooth tactical veteran owned veteran operated and, and, and delivering quality every single day uh, just another great sponsor of the survival podcast remember best way to find our sponsors go to the survival podcast click on their banners in the right hand margin next remember connecting me Facebook YouTube and Twitter are ways to do that uh, check out our forum, check out our gear shop and last but not least do consider joining the member support brigade if you do that you get exclusive content available only to members and uh, if you're military law enforcement firefighter something like that at a national service level level, email me tell me details of your service prior service prior service or active duty either one and I will give you a special discount code uh, for the member support brigade to thank you for your service all right with that uh, let's go take your calls but before we do that I actually have one subject that just keeps coming up it just keeps coming up, and I've got to talk about it here. And I've already talked about it, but I'm going to do it again because I want you guys not to be tricked by this. This whole Occupy Wall Street thing. I just got an email today from someone that says it's spreading. It's in San Francisco and some other places now. And you know, will it reach critical mass? And I, here's the thing: I don't know if it'll reach critical mass. But let me tell you what this is. This is a group of pro-government people uh, running a bunch of other people who may or may not be pro-government people. The people that are actually out in the streets chanting and yelling and screaming don't really have any freaking clue what they're doing. They would be classified uh, as useful idiots, and they are useful to the people manipulating them. The goal is to cause riots, which will in, in cause the people of the country to beg for a government crackdown and come in and do more to control the, the on-the-scene violence, and put in more restrictions against our liberties, and then to dabble in the world of supposedly putting more controls in the financial situation that set the whole thing off, which will actually just create greater collaboration between government and business, which is the problem in the first place. That's what this is, it is nothing more, do not get involved with it, do not think these people are your friends, do not think anything good will come from this. That's all I can say about it, and if it's happening in your area, be ready to get the hell out of Dodge, because the goal is to push it over the edge. That doesn't mean that stuff like the police abuses we saw in New York are acceptable, but... Um, and it doesn't mean that that, you know, police officer sprayed that lady in the face shouldn't go to jail for doing it. He just walked up and did it. But it doesn't mean that that lady was actually, uh, in any way helping you or helping the rest of America. Right, The enemy of your enemy is not always your friend. In fact, many times, the enemy of your enemy is actually the friend of your enemy, and they're both duping you. That's what's going on here. So that's one thing I want to cover before we take your calls. The other thing is, and, and I want to make sure I give this some air time. I was going to wait till Monday, but I want to get you guys behind this one. There's a company called Landreth Seed Company. They're one of the nation's oldest heirloom seed providers. They have a catalog that's like a, a, a coffee table book. They were on the verge of going out of business. They decided to start selling their catalog for five bucks. It went value. Uh, viral, uh, so far they've sold, um, a total of 24,000 catalogs, 114 grand. Uh, that's got them stable, but I still think this is a noble cause. Uh, if we want to have heirloom seeds around, then we need to help these small companies and spend a five bucks on a catalog and, uh, looking at it and figuring out what we're gonna order from this company for the spring is not a bad thing to be doing right now. Uh, maybe even time to get some stuff for fall, winter gardening uh, ordered. This is my thing on this. I'm not just telling you to support Landreth Seed Company. I'm telling you all of these you know, high mowing, uh, you know, Victory, uh, all of these seed companies that are out there that are still independent, that are not owned by Monsanto or Conagra or whatever, and haven't gobbled up yet or forced out of business yet. When you're ordering you know, a whole bunch of seeds, spread your orders out. You know, order some from Monticello from Thomas Jefferson's people. Uh, you know, the, the the stuff that goes all the way back to our our, our third president. Uh, order some from Landrith. Order some from Baker Creek. Order a little bit everywhere. You'll spend a little more in shipping, but if we want these companies to stay in business, we need to give them some business. I uh, just wanted to make sure I gave these guys a plug today. I'll link to their Facebook page where you can learn more about them today. Again, Landrith Seed Company uh, originally put out on Huffington Post is the first place I saw it, so uh, I don't agree with a lot of things that come out on Huffington Post, but good for them and kudos on this. And to the folks over at Huffington that put this out, thank you for doing that. Uh, you know, not always, we don't always have to agree to agree on some things. And I think supporting small businesses like Landreth is a great thing. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Again, if you want to be on a show like this, 866-65-THINK
2: jacket hey Jack,
3: it's Logan in Colorado and I was thinking, you thinking know, to myself um, as I was making a peanut butter sandwich, you know, how hard it would be to make my own peanut butter and so I was looking at the ingredients and it just says roasted peanuts, palm oil, sugar and salt and so if you could grow peanuts it seems like it wouldn't be that hard, I've never, I don't even know how you make peanut butter but it wouldn't be that much you know, of a leap to um, Make your own, and uh, peanut butter's—you know, as far as I see, a good survival prep. um stores well for a long time. So, just a thought. Thanks for the show. Have a good day.
1: Oh, great observation! It's actually easier than that. Yeah, if you want to make peanut butter, and you have like a really good blender, I—you know—I have a Vitamix, uh, which is uh, one of the uh, one of the kind of top end blenders. Uh, basically, this is what you need to do: you take a whole bunch of peanuts and you stick them in there. You turn it on really fast until it makes peanut butter, and that's it. That's that's peanut butter. Uh, the sugar is there to make it sweeter and make it more addictive and more likely that you'll buy more of it. Uh, the salt is there as a flavor enhancement. A little bit of salt uh, does help with, with peanut butter, but you don't need it. Um, definitely, kind of lifts the flavor. Right? That's why I like you know salt as part of your storage. The palm oil is there as a preservative, and it's not necessary. So the big caveat when you're making your own peanut butter is it has no preservatives in it. So the shelf life of peanut, Jif peanut butter or Peter Pan or Store store Brand X or whatever is generally extremely long. When you make your own without using that palm oil or some other preservative in it, it generally has a very short shelf life. And there's a lot of oil in peanut butter. And part of what the, the processing they do to, the, to it in the commercial situation does is prevent the oil from separating. So if you make your own peanut butter, a lot of times the oil will separate – and it's a pretty simple fix. You mix it up and you put it back in. If you want to make crunchy peanut butter, how do you do that? You throw a whole bunch of peanuts in there. You mash them up until it's peanut butter. And then you throw it in there on low speed. You throw a couple handfuls of additional peanuts in there so it rolls around and cracks them up into smaller pieces but doesn't pulverize them. And then you have chunky peanut butter. That's how easy it is. You could do it with a mortar and pestle if you wanted to. It can be done by hand. You just have shelf life of almost nothing. That's So what's the solution? Well, peanuts in their raw or roasted form actually have pretty good shelf life. So we store the peanuts and we make the peanut butter as we need it, maybe a few days' worth at a time. So good observation. There's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Let's take another call.
3: Hey, Jack. I was just clicking through the channels, and I ran across this show called Living for the Apocalypse. And uh, within about 10 seconds or less, I was able to figure out that uh, it's basically a prepper minded uh, show. And they interviewed four different groups of people to find out what they do about prepping. And unfortunately, they picked some extremely strange folks. Um, not all of them, but the majority of them were pretty odd and, you know, from, you know or uh, uh, not typical. They had. A transgender couple, they had a a guy who dresses his kids in like chemical suits every other day. They got a guy who, I mean, basically, the the story is that um, they make prepping look out to be like a crazy man's activity, and it's kind of disappointing. I mean, I guess it's nothing new, but how do you change that in the mainstream? How do you make it, how do we, what do we need to do to get shows that give it legitimacy and uh, make it look like, don't make it look like it's a crazy person thing. Anyway, have a good day. Thanks for what you do. Bye.
1: I'm actually growing weary of all these shows that they're putting out on preppers. I think that they, um, I know for a fact that the Nat Geo show, Doomsday Preppers, is designed to, in the words of the producer, show the Mac Daddy of preppers, and that he believes, flat out, to my face, that if we show people what prepping's really all about, no one will watch. Um, that if we just make it about the people that have basic preparedness and what you can do and how you can do it in your own home, uh, nobody will watch. All this apocalyptic shit, doomsday prepper, that, all of it. I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm absolutely sick of it. Uh, I've been approached by three different networks now to do shows like this and be part of them. And I've basically told them all the same things, some nicely and some not so nicely. And the answer has been go screw. And this is why. These people are not going to help what we're trying to do. They are this crap about, well, at least they're raising awareness. No, they're not. No, they're not. These are like, they're putting shows on TV that are akin to, let's say, people that go to the zoo to watch monkeys throw crap at each other. It's, it's, it's pure shock value entertainment. Look at the little kid in the gas mask. Look at, look at, look at the guy in the bomb shelter, whatever, you know? Even where those things actually fit into preparedness, they're, they're, they're angling it so that this is what preppers are. So that when you talk to your friend, this is why this sucks. Right when you start talking to your neighbor and doing what I say about building community and say you know we're worried about a little bit of emergency preparedness, making sure that we're prepared if there's a food shortage, or all of a sudden you're the freaking creep putting your kids in a mop suit and you don't even know how to put it on right. Okay, that's that's where this stuff is going. They're gonna make it more and more. And you know I told this guy again, this is a Nat Geo producer. I told this guy to his face what you're doing has one or two seasons maximum in it. And what he told me was that's all I need. I told him I'm building a legacy. He said, well, if you work with me, I can put you in front of 2 million people. And he belittled my 25,000. That's a God's honest truth. Here's how I feel about that. Here's how I freaking feel about that. My 25,000 will do more than your 2 million. I am tired of these shows. Until someone does one right, I don't even want to talk about them anymore. That's how I feel. You want people to actually learn from it. Uh, I've pitched these guys a few ideas, but none of them are interested in ideas. They already have the show approved. They want to follow the formula. They're all copying each other. It's all crap. It's all absolute fictitious crap. None of it's real. None of it's true. It's all angled to look like idiocy. It's designed to make us look bad. And what I've told them all is I can't do anything or be associated with anybody that will portray the people that listen to my show and are in my community in anything less than a 100% positive light. And there are some other networks that are trying to do some things. Discovery has uh, something that they're working on that I think is a little better, but it's still got the apocalypse name in it, right? As long as they're doing that ass clown crap, I can't help them. And I think that the best thing we can do is figure out how we as a community, maybe we do something together on YouTube. Maybe next year I make a little tour across the United States and we show what real prepping is all about. And we do it in a documentarian status. And And maybe when we get a few million views or more to something like that, maybe these people will figure out. The people want to know what they can do. And when you're showing somebody uh, putting in a quarter million dollar bomb shelter, that's something that 99.9% of the people in America can't do to be ready for the crap that is coming. So that's my thoughts on that. Sorry to go on a rant, but you know what? I'm just tired of it. And, and, and the fact that, this goes right back to my show I did on consumerism versus common sense. No original ideas, networks, right? Anybody that's in the networks out there that's trying to figure out how to get me on my show, get a freaking original idea. Quit copying your neighbor. Come up with something that shows us positively. I'll work with you. Till then, screw off.
4: Hey, Jack. Rational Husker from the forum. Just left a message, but it went long. So let me try to be more concise. Calling with a property question. My wife and I are trying to sell our home. It's been on the market several months, but we've had very little traffic through the home. Talk to other people with homes on the market in the area. They're experiencing the same thing. So our area locally is just really slow. We're surprised by that. We're in the Midwest. Uh, things seem fairly, relatively quite good here economically. But anyway, we're having trouble moving it. So at what point does it make sense because we don't have to sell. We're just selling because we feel it makes sense economically. And we want to do a bunch of long-term prepping, but we don't want to be in this house forever, and we know that. So we're trying to get out. But at what point do you just reside to the fact that you might be there longer than you want and, and you need to start putting in some long-term prep? Refinancing very attractive with low rates. Um, so I'm just weighing those those options. Uh, help help me think of some things I'm missing. Also, what's your take on residential real estate in general over the next 12 to 18 months? Do you think there's still a good opportunity to get out? Uh, thanks, Jack.
1: It's really two questions there, Rational Husker. One is, uh, how the hell do I get out of here? That's the real question. And the other question is, if I'm going to stay, you know, what does it mean for me and how do I do it best? Let's start off with, you know, my best advice for you on how to get out. This is the reality about selling a home at any given time and any given place. Anybody looking to buy a home right now has a price they can afford, and they are generally going to spend what they can afford. And what they can afford is based on uh, two things, what they believe they can afford and what a bank says they're willing to lend them. So everybody out there is sitting in a, a price range of somewhere between 10 and 20 thousand dollars. They're not even gonna go that low, right? So if they can afford 150, most people who can afford 150 are gonna buy something between 130 and 150. Even if they find a really nice house at 120, they're generally gonna keep looking. Because they're retards. Alright? So we have to understand the market is full of people that think that way. So what that means is that anybody looking at your house, and if your house is listing for 150, 180, 250, 350, I don't care what it is, anybody looking at your house, is looking at houses about $10,000 more and $10,000 less. You could be on the bottom of that, and you could be on the top of that, but your aggregate average is you're going to be sitting right in the middle of what people are looking at to the upper end. Okay, So if you want out of a house, this is what you have to do, and this is the only way to sell right now, and it's how I sold my house in how many days, folks? Three. Three days. You go look at every single house selling... Uh, in your price range, everybody, especially look at the. You know, I said twenty, but the five thousand uh, dollar variance. If you're at one forty-five, from one forty to one fifty, go there like you're going to buy the house. Go inside the house, look at the house, right? View the house, view the listing, view everything about it, and you need to make sure your house has the best of everything in that ten thousand dollar range. And you can sell any house you want to right now. That's that's the God's honest truth. It may not be easy, you may have to make some seller concessions, you may have to barter, you may have to walk away and, and chuck chuck out three grand to get out from another house depending on what you owe. Um but if you have a price in mind that you need to sell your home for, if you can't make it for that price the best of that group, you're not gonna sell it. So you have two choices, lower the price or make it the best in the group. And here's the key. If you lower the price ten thousand dollars, that won't do it. Now I have to go look at all the houses. If I was at 145 and I'm at 135, I gotta go look at all the houses from 130 to 140 and I still have to make it the best of that group. That might mean putting in new countertops, that might be doing refacing of cabinets, that might be painting the whole house. It whatever is being done by your competition, you have to do better. So when that one buyer that looks at ten houses comes through and says that I have $150 to spend and I'm going to buy the best I can get for 150. you are the best. So that's how you get out. As far as what's the future, um, I'm going to bring Carl Derringer on the show next week, and he's going to tell you the future sucks, and he's going to tell you that the future sucks soon, and they, they are not even going to be able to hold the catastrophe back before the next 2012 election. And he may be right. I'm going to tell you that I think the next side of the catastrophe is in between 2013 and 2015. That that's the real, municipal bonds blow up, everything completely, you know, the, the, the cap comes off of everything. Uh, that, yeah, there's going to be some problems in Europe, but it's not going to be uh, what Carl's saying. It's going to take more than that to push it over. It's going to take defaults of like Los Angeles and, and, and New York and that uh, you have a little more time. And here's what Carl and I will tell you we agree on. It's going to happen sooner or later. It's either his time frame in early 2012, my time frame 2013, 2014, or we're both wrong and it's 2018. But it's going to happen because it has to because no one has the political will to fix it right now. So you don't have forever. If you're sitting on residential property you you do not like, it won't get – I'll put it to you this way. I don't know how long before it gets a lot worse, but I can tell you it's a very, very, very long time before it gets any better. And I would not recommend that anybody buy in the urban, tightly woven suburban areas right now. Uh, I really wouldn't. I'd say if you want to live there, rent. Uh, but there are buyers. That's how you get out. If you decide to stay, then you do the best you can with what you have and you start planning for the long term. You start building equity. You definitely refinance. You'll hear from somebody that did that and it's going to do that again at the end of the show today. Um, and you, you start actually trying to pay down the mortgage. Uh, many people in the financial industry that believe what I believe would tell you the exact opposite. Freaking leave the, refinance it for as cheap as possible if you can't get rid of it. Pay the minimum payment and screw it if you ever have to walk away. Um, no matter how bad it gets, the banks aren't gonna forget you owe the money. And if you have equity in your home, at least you still have a window to get out as things begin to fall. Remember that the sheep are dumb. That's why they're sheep. And that as long as one person on Fox News or CNN tells them that there's a recovery coming, they're going to keep behaving like it's going to happen, even as it's all the way slowly sliding down. Realize that I do not think that this is a depression that will come on us like a thief in the night where uh, it's really good today and really bad in the next day. There will be a point where people accept that that's what happened, but this is a very slow downward spiraling slide uh, a skid. The market's in a sideways skid. Unemployment's in a sideways skid. Everything's moving sideways, but that means we're moving down slowly. There's no such thing as sideways in business or life. It's either up or down. And when it looks like sideways, it's down because everything's growing around you Well, you go sideways. So if you think about it, this is the economy right now. This is the state we're in. If you've got a tree in the forest and it's not growing, right, and you say, well, but it's not getting any shorter either, but if it's just stunted at at four feet and all the other trees in the forest are four feet, if the other trees in the forest are growing, then it's shrinking in relation to the whole. That's the economy. When the economy moves sideways and populations are increasing and inflation is occurring and things like that, the, the economy is collapsing as the rest of the expense and size of the world expands around it. Sorry, I can't give you a better picture on that. So, if you want out, I would work my ass to get out, off, to get out within the next year, honestly, in case Carl's right. Um, and I would do exactly what I told you to do there. Let's take another one.
2: Hey, Jack, it's Ray from Kentucky
5: again. had a quick question about pruning paper plants. I heard you on uh, several occasions say that you can, uh, winter over your pepper plants and you'll uh but that's just to uh prune them first i was wondering how to how to go about that what all i need to take off what i need to leave uh thanks for all that you do and uh
2: your work with the show thanks bye
1: best procedure is to prune them down to about 50 percent of their total volume Uh, bring them into a place where they're going to have a temperature that's at least 60 degrees. Uh, 50s at at night is is okay, Uh, no cooler than that, Uh, quite a bit of sunshine. And, uh, sunny window will usually work for that once the plants establish. Continue to water them through the winter. Uh, if they're in containers that are easily moved, which is what you should do for something like this, when you have those great warm winter days where it goes up to like in the seventies, uh, you know, Indian summer and what have you, any day where it's, 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 it's over 60 degrees and the sun's out, pick up the pots, put them out on the deck or the porch, put them in the sun. Uh, make sure you don't forget them and bring them in before the cooler weather of the evening comes in. You may even get some fruiting by your peppers in your home and don't be surprised surprised. surprised if uh, due to uh, higher concentrations of ethylene in your home than outside um, they actually turn color faster so you may see uh, some of your peppers go from green to red quicker than they do out in the sun Uh, but that's it there's there's not a lot to it and uh, you can even do this with peppers planted into your garden it's generally possible peppers don't have that significant of a root system if you're especially growing in uh, a nice loose friable compost based soil you can take a couple of your pepper plants every year, give them the old prune job, dig well around them and dig them up out of the bed, stick them in a pot, bring them in the house. The advantage is next spring, once the danger of frost is passed, instead of putting out these little puny pepper plants, you might be putting out some of those to expand your production through the year, but you can put out three or four really big, robust ones that go in their second year. Peppers in their native habitat are a perennial bush, not an annual plant. Uh, I don't think most people realize that, but that's all there is to it. There's nothing complicated at all about it. The big things they need, water, sun, and a temperature uh, that doesn't get anywhere near freezing to get them through the winter. If they get down into the 40s once in a while, it will be okay, but it's not best when you're trying to pull them through that winter. The reason for the pruning okay, is it reduces the root requirement. When you prune a tree or a bush or a shrub or anything, it self-prunes its root system. So by pruning it, when we're doing the transplant, uh, it doesn't need as much support. So some of the roots that we lose, it would have shed anyway. It also kind of stimulates new growth and takes it through a second season because even in native habitats where it doesn't freeze, peppers tend to be eaten by certain insects and have a natural pruning. They just tend to shed some leaves. So we're in a tightly controlled environment trying to simulate a natural environment. Let's take another call.
2: Hi, Jack. This is
6: Johnny from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I'm a chemist, and I had a comment on Stephen Harris's, or rather a question, or maybe he can clarify. Um, typically, when he was talking about uh, adding um, ethanol to uh, uh, to your gas tank in a certain proportion to see when uh, when your engine starts running rough or, or that sort of thing, um, typically fuel alcohol or, you know, 190-proof alcohol does not mix with gasoline very well, and it's sort of a dangerous thing to do because... That uh, They'll form two phases in the bottom of your gas can. So um, I'm wondering if you had any particular tricks to uh, getting those two to mix. Otherwise, I think you have to have 200-proof alcohol, uh, which is typically distilled against benzene, which is a little bit hard to manufacture at home by yourself. So um, I'm wondering if there are any tricks or tips for getting um, regular uh, uh, alcohol that you distill at home to mix with your gasoline Uh, in your gas can so you can uh, uh, start, you know, uh, cutting your gasoline costs with uh, with uh, alcohol you produce at home.
5: Thanks.
1: Well, the basic answer is there is no trick, and I understand you're a chemist, and Steve said, well, he's a chemist, so I'm going to have to prove it to him. Uh, But the, the answer is they mix, and they don't separate. And if you had, the little bit of water that's there with the ethanol, the way that you get that, you get water out of, uh, gasoline. If you have a little bit of water in your gasoline, you're having some engine problems with that, not enough to shut the engine down. You buy an additive to get rid of, uh, that alcohol, or that water. Uh, you know what it is, it's ethanol. That's what you, that's what you dump. So that water treatment for your gas system is ethanol. So it is its own treatment. Um, Steven is going to replicate an experiment that he found for us online. Uh, it's in a forum, the E85 forum. And it's, uh, posted by a, a guy that calls himself Grand Touring Labs. It was posted on Monday, April 14th, 2008. And he says, uh, open Spock. Fascinating. Closed Spock. So remember fast, uh, stop Spock from Star Trek? Fascinating. Um, None of these mixtures separated. I was very, very surprised. Test tubes don't lie. We'll see if they hold together after a night in the freezer. But 7 degree ambient temperature looks good. Here's the mixtures he did. 20% 20% E85 and 80% Everclear. 50% E85 and 50% Everclear, which is obviously a lower alcohol concentration than uh, uh, the, you know what you might make yourself and go a little bit higher with. 20% E10 and 80% Everclear. 50% E10 and 50% Everclear. You know, guys, I don't mind doing these quick and dirty tests and posting the results. Is it possible that one day I'm going to regret finding out all this stuff? I don't want to know federal and corporate secrets or anything like that. How this kind of work reverberates in the community is undeniably powerful. It's powerful. I've grown a fear because of the responsibility involved. Who's to say someone tried this isn't depending on keeping a specific results quiet. I feel like this stuff changes the world in a very short amount of time. Anyway, um, Stephen also found for me a uh, EPA.gov, maybe this guy doesn't need to worry, PDF, that backs up the study that says you can mix this stuff and it stays together. So the answer is there's nothing that you need to do except mix it. And it actually does mix and it doesn't separate. Um, And as far as the the water, as long as we have a reasonable mixture with gasoline or uh, an already mixed gasoline like E85 or E10, uh, the water is uh, taken care of by the ethanol itself. Uh, great uh, opportunity for you guys coming up next week on Tuesday. Stephen will be on to talk about everything to do with uh, alcohol-based fuels. We would have included this little tidbit in that show, except this question wasn't uh, addressed until after I had actually done the interview. I've got some interviews lined up for next week because, again, I'm going away to Salt Lake City. Uh, but the answer is you just mix it and put it in your car and go. Uh, with a few different little caveats, tune in Tuesday to hear those. Uh, but chemist or not, dude, when you mix the two, they stay together, and all the evidence seems to back that up. Steve actually actually going away next week as well, so he won't have to do, uh, time to do it next week. He is going to replicate this experiment to prove or disprove it for you. Uh, that will come out sometime in the next few weeks. He'll do a review, post it on YouTube, that type of thing. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call.
2: Jack, Dave from Upper Michigan, haven't left you a message for a little bit here. I wanted to comment on show 734. Toward the end of the show, you were talking about um, this uh, 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 public meeting where there were some camera people that were shut down, and I I guess maybe a different perspective that I have. And and believe me, I feel of one accord with you on so many levels, and freedom is one of them. That's the reason why I'm kind of a recovering Republican because I like what the Republicans say, but they go squishy too often and act like a Democrat or a socialist, and so they I get disgusted with them. The point I just wanted to make was that the guys that it, that were videotaping, they said that there was a bunch of they were activists and there were a bunch of activists in the crowd. If I if I caught that correctly, and I thought what that dude might have been thinking is this is a setup. They're going to try to embarrass me and look, make me look like a monkey on camera by flooding this meeting with their compatriots and just trying to make me look like a monkey on camera. And at that point, when those little games like that are, it's not really the public, in my view. It's the activist. It's the communist. It's the socialist using their tricks. There's a there's a book called Witness by Whitaker Chambers, written by a communist that turned against communism toward freedom around the time of nineteen in the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties. He's the one that blew the whistle on Elder Hiss. But his book was a bestseller at the time. If you want to find out about communism and, and it'll chill you to the bone to read that book. But thanks a lot, Jack. I, I love your show. I feel like you're a kindred spirit. Talk to you, bye bye.
1: See, with all due respect, I completely disagree with that. First of all, uh, they are the public. Just because somebody thinks different than we do or has a different agenda than us or wants something we don't want, does it make them not the public? If we start saying who can and who cannot videotape or do things like that in a public meeting on public property with a public official, um, just because you say they're a socialist, well, what if they say you're a right-wing extremist and you no longer have the right to ask the questions, have them videotaped, and record the recording either? Second of all, if you actually look at it, no one was causing any problems whatsoever. All those people were doing was sitting there with a camera pointed at the guy. Third, if me asking a congressman can make him look like a stupid idiot, then that's his problem. If you are going to serve in the United States Congress, you should be able to answer questions that are asked of you by your constituents, whether they agree with you or not. And nothing they say or do should make you look stupid unless you're stupid. Okay, so if you come off looking dumb because someone asked you a question... And you didn't know how to answer it and you were too stupid to at least go, you know what, I don't have an answer for you right now. We will get one for you and get back to you and make a statement on that. And you're not smart enough to do that. Then I don't think you're smart enough to serve in my government in the first place. And I think this kind of mentality, and I'm not picking on you individually, it's very easy to fall into this trap. But this type of mentality is is dangerous. Notice when I talked about the idiots on the Occupy Wall Street earlier and said they're not your friends. Here's the agenda. I didn't say that we should be able to go in, taser everybody, take them off the street and lock them down. I didn't say that. You want to protest because you're an idiot? You have a right to protest because you're an idiot. You don't have a right to occupy and block streets. And that's one thing these people did. When you saw that lady get sprayed, yeah, she was all behind that little police line and, and on the sidewalk and all. You know how they got there? Because police brought that thing in and pushed them onto the sidewalk because they were disrupting traffic. All right. There is peaceful protesting and then there is the obstruction of uh, of commerce and there is the obstruction of people being able to get down a road. And there's people that don't care about your cause and don't care about your problem and you are not able to incapacitate them by occupying a thoroughfare. All right. So we have to balance this stuff, yes. But when we start saying, well, just because someone has a socialist agenda, they can't run a video camera at a public meeting, son, you're going to be the one they're going to tell and can't do it next. And I'm sorry, public official, public property, public meeting, anybody anywhere should be able to video and record that and go on record with it thereafter. It's not a private by invitation only meeting held on private property. Public meeting, public property, public official, public period. I don't care what your agenda is. If you if we start suppressing people based on their agenda in this country, we're no longer America. And it's already happening. And those of us fighting for liberty do not need to dogpile on to it. Let's take another call. I do want to warn you that the next call is going to have some parts where it's broken up and have some poor audio quality. When you hear the situation the individual's in while he's making the call, you'll know why I let it on the air anyway, so please bear with the caller. Doing the best he can in a tough situation. So let's tune in and hear uh, what the next caller has to tell us.
5: Hi, Jack. This is David. I'm calling you from my car. I am currently evacuating my neighborhood, which is burning down. I have been uh, a listener of the podcast for a couple months now, and during that time, I've learned a lot. And I really appreciate everything that you've taught me. My wife and I have been well prepared for the fire because it is the most likely disaster in the neighborhood. There are virtually no other disasters that could happen there. Look, we were prepared. We had all of our emergency belongings packed away and ready to go. And we had our pet carriers ready to go. We simply grabbed some duffel bags, got the pets, got our important belongings and laptops, and loaded our cars. And now we're heading off to stay with some relatives while the firemen do their job. Just calling to say thanks. And, uh, I got a long trip ahead of me, so I'm going to be listening to more episodes of the podcast.
1: Bye. Well, for all of you out there, it's like, I don't have a bug out plan because I'm just going to bug in. There's your, there's your answer, right? I mean, that's, uh, as basic as it gets. If your house is about to burn down and you've done everything you can and the fire department says, we're going to try to save it, dude, but we think your neighborhood's already on fire on a couple blocks over and we don't think we're going to be able to do it and you need to get the hell out of here. Well, you got to get out. And hopefully you have a plan, you're ready to go, and you're not leaving behind the animals that you love or things that are important to you and your family that you want to save, and you're not trying to do this at the last minute, and you have a plan. And I, I wish the whole call would have came in because I think we missed some important information. But, you know, basically what we have here is a family making a phone call to TSP's uh, think line in the middle of an evacuation, and if you notice, nobody's sobbing or scared or anything. Calm, deliberate, with an intention and with a plan. And it's a story that I'm going to tell every single time I meet somebody at an event or something to say, well, I don't have a bug out plan. I'm just going to bug in. Not when your house is about to burn down. Not when a tidal wave smashes your house to the ground. Not when a tornado rips the roof off of your house. Not when you know a fire burns down your house and all of your other neighbors' homes. And no, you're not going to fight the fire off with your garden hose. If the fire department can't do it with all the equipment they have, you're not going to do it with that little trickle that comes out of your garden hose. I think most people really do not understand the savagery of a true firestorm. They don't get it. They don't understand because if you have a campfire, you throw a little water on it, it goes away. Uh, They do not get the scale, the temperatures... Uh, the driving forces that uh, do this stuff and based on the area code I'm going to say this guy was somewhere around the Bastrop area uh, down there in, in South Texas and based on when the call came in that was probably the fires that he was fleeing but let's face it folks it happened in quite a few different places this year please be prepared please put that documentation plan together that I talk about please have a place that you're going to go please have more than one place you would go and please have plans for each place more than one route and how you would get there and please have the basic things you're going to need to take with you ready to go at all times. And please make allowances for things like family pets because you, you will you will not imagine how much comfort uh, throwing his arms around a Labrador retriever while Johnny's leaving his house and it might burn down, how much comfort that is to your kids. And no one wants to leave a member of the family behind. And to me, when we take animals into our homes and make them, quote, pets, unquote, we make them part of the family. So great information there. I, 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 uh, I hope for you. I send you my thoughts and prayers, man, uh, that your house survived. I'd love to hear from you if you've, you know back home or if you're still away. Uh, email's the best way to do that, man. Let me know what happened. I really want to know. And for those of you that need to get important information to me quickly, public service announcement here at the end of this one, um, do not use this phone line. Do not use 866 65 thinking, go, Jack, I really need to talk to you tomorrow. Email jack at the survival podcast. Podcast.com. Thoughts and prayers go out to you and your family, sir, and thank you for, in that time of trial, taking the time to share with others. That says an awful lot about your character. I know you'll stand well in the future. Let's take another call. Hi, Steve from Minnesota
6: here. Wondering about your opinion here uh, with timberland and farmland becoming kind of the, the go-to for people that can afford it as far as investment and the... All the government problems, and they're seemingly uh, seemingly liking to sell off government and property and all that stuff to private interests and uh, whatever. Uh, do you do you foresee, in your opinion, the all the way from city cities all the way up to the federal government selling a state parks, city parks, national forest land, all that stuff? Do you do you foresee that? Uh, going on the market as the government scrambles to get money uh thanks for your uh uh, opinion here on this one bye
1: another one of those questions it seems like one question but we're in two areas that we have to cover if we're going to answer it properly the first thing is you're right there's a lot of money moving into uh, farmland and timberland right now especially big money it's the hot thing and you got to understand why rich people. And when I say rich people, I don't mean the, the people that Obama calls rich, that makes two hundred thousand a year that he wants to raise taxes on. Uh, I mean rich people like mega rich, super multi billionaire, rich millionaire, you know, almost billionaire, you know, junior billionaire type, eight hundred million dollar net worth type people. They don't invest in good investments. They invest in the best investments for the coming climate. So. The farmland timberland investment is two different approaches to the coming climate. Uh, approach one preserve long term wealth through a disaster of financial epic proportions. Answer timberland. Why? It's a freaking tree. Unless it burns down in a fire, which I can insure against with an insurance policy, it's a tree. It grows and it grows and it grows. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't care if the entire housing market falls apart. I don't care if the city's burned down to the ground. I don't care what happens. Eventually, there has to be a recovery, and then they'll need to build stuff. And since we're not building out of space age, houses out of space-age polymers and won't be doing that anytime soon, um, you know what? Trees are where we're going to get the building materials. So that's the long-term wealth preservation strategy. Goal two, cash flow during the downturn. Okay, Interest rates, nothing. No way to make any money. Investing is a fool's errand. I put a little bit of money aside for trading. I give it to the the trader guy that I hired because multi-billionaires don't do their own trading. And he does the best he can for me with that. But I cannot rely on it. So I need a way to preserve cash flow. Going into the real estate market right now, typical real estate, way to get my head cut off. Property values continue to drop. Whatever I buy for and rent for cash flow positive today will be different tomorrow as the values of property sell off. More landlords come in and compete with me on a cutthroat business, and rents go lower as the market falls. Okay, So that's, that, that is a bad operational uh, MO right now. I can't do that. That was a 90s MO. That was an early 2000s MO. Real estate for the coming crisis in that rental house mode, bad idea. So what do we do? We go to farmland because people got to eat and I know that I can put some share crop style farmer on there, I can lease him the land, and that I can produce food over and over again. If I'm mega wealthy and I buy that piece of land, I have an agricultural exemption, it has a very low overhead as far as property taxes go, there is cash flow out of it, it doesn't matter that the underlying value falls. Right? If the value of the land itself falls, as long as I'm using it for cash flow, I don't care. People are going to have to eat farmland more valuable than ever, at least from a production capacity standpoint. That's why the rich are going there. So now we can address the rest of your question. So what value will there be in city parks and stuff like that? Very little. Unless we can look at water rights, water that's underneath them, oil and gas rights of oil and gas that are underneath them, or timber that's on top of them. So national parks... Look at those is that would be the last thing to go. That would be the last thing a government would sell off. Um they would be more likely to lease rights to resources within them. It's the only way that they would be able to ever get it fly, and the greenies would probably blow themselves up on the Washington lawn if they did that. So that's the last thing. But would cities do things like uh sell off city parks and things like that? Yeah, but if the real estate market's crumbling, if the economy's crumbling, who do you sell it to? See, most of that stuff doesn't make good farmland or cropland. It's not big enough for that type of scale. What they're more likely to do is push property taxes up as high as they can get away with, um, go in and do as many seizures as they can ahead of the banks in foreclosure for failure to pay property taxes, try to flip these properties over to landlords and make a play at keeping the tax base stable by moving home ownership back to landlords versus property owners. But the big money doesn't want to be in that market, so you're looking at your people with a net worth of a couple million dollars you're playing with there that are going to try to use this like a monopoly depression to acquire a bunch of land right at the other side. They can do that, they can work that, but it depends on how long it goes down and how long it stays sideways, how long they tie their money up, it's a much riskier play for them because they can't play in the big world. So will cities and towns sell off resources this is the big question. The answer is yes, but what they effectively can sell for how much is going to be highly um, situational, and it only makes sense to do if it actually solves a problem, so Some of these cities have, you know, multi-billion dollar deficits. So if you can sell off a city park for, you know, even a half a million dollars, it doesn't actually do anything to the deficit. It doesn't prevent them from going over. They're better off holding on to it and maybe saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to replant the park with better trees. And they'll sell the timber rights to it or something like that. You'll see more stuff like that go on. But when you see all this this buzz around these two commodities, timber and farmland, understand that's the wealth preservation strategy. Now, where did I read that? Who told me that? What's my source on that? I don't have one. That's me independently looking at the two classifications of investment, Using my common frickin' sense and saying if I were George Soros or Jim Rogers or any of these other billionaires and I was buying farm and timberland, what would be my justification to my accountant that says, uh, Jack, uh, are you sure you want to buy like $150 million worth of farmland in the Midwest and $200 million worth of timberland across the United States? Uh, you know this whole thing's going into a recession. What's your thought process here? I'm going to feed people food, and I'm going to generate cash flow, and I'm going to preserve my long-term wealth, and make sure you get me good insurance on both of those investments. That's what's going on. If we understand that, then the rest of the story becomes a lot more self-evident, and you start realizing this whole, you know, Patriots coming collapse. I love Jim Rawls, by the way, but, you know, the Dutch are coming to repossess us, because, no, I'm sorry, that's just not that's not the way economics works, and I think he was just trying to weave a story that turned out to be a pretty cool story. I I look at Patriots like a train wreck. Uh, there's a lot of flaws in it, but, God, it's hard to put it down, and you, you enjoy reading it, so... If you haven't read Patriots yet, you may want to uh, just understand. You're going to see some things in there. You're like, "What?" Um, but that's not the way things work in the modern world. It just isn't. Um, there's there's a completely different dynamic at play here. What's coming is another Great Depression, and all the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome stuff, and 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 the whole cities closing down. It will happen to some, and it's happened to some already. I drove through cities in nor- northern Ark or uh, northern Louisiana and southern Arkansas that were pretty much gone. The the city's just closed. They just disappeared. And you could drive through there. And some of them were near lakes and stuff. There were pretty nice lakes. You could tell there used to be a little tourist business there and some community going on and some farming. And the big farms are sitting there. And there's not even a farmhouse. Uh, the farms are operated remotely. People come in to do the planning. People come in and do the harvesting. The irrigation is automated and the stuff just sits out there in the middle of frickin' nowhere. And you drive through these towns and there's a couple people living there and there's some, you know, there's some places that look like the projects in, 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 in like South Chicago, uh, in the middle of these rural areas. One little segment where there's still a few people living. And, uh, the rest of the town you go through and all the windows are boarded up in the shops. That will happen just not the way that I think people are expecting it to. As long as there's people, there has to be some semblance of a society and some semblance of an order, and people will fit that together. The danger is it may look really ugly during these transitional periods and some really dangerous riots and and city burnings and stuff like that are possible. Uh, I don't mean to scare you, but I also want to be honest with you. I want to be honest that the society itself as a whole... Its longevity will hold together. That's what these rich people are betting on when they're buying these two critical key investments for their future. But it can be some very dangerous times in between. Please be prepared. That's all I'm saying. Let's take another call.
2: Hey, Jack. This is Lauren in Indiana. And I really dig the show. And thanks for keeping it up. Hey, I was wanting to know if, and I don't know if anybody else has asked this question because, uh, I've been listening to like football podcasts. I've got a long way to catch up, but I was wondering if if um, Sepp Holzer's techniques on the uh, on the side of mountains was uh, any kind of factor in you choosing uh, your place up in the mountains. Just curious. thanks. Keep it up. See ya.
1: Well, I learned about Sepp Holzer uh, doing stuff on the sides of mountains about two years ago. I learned about hugu culture from Paul Wheaton about a year ago, not really seeing hugu culture explained well in the videos I saw about Sepp. And I bought my house uh, about eight, nine years ago. So that tells you the answer to that is absolutely, positively no. I wish I had known more about permaculture and Hoogle culture and Seth Holzer and Paul Wheaton and Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton and all those things when I bought my house. I probably wouldn't have bought the house I had. There are a lot of things about my home that I'm not 100% happy with as far as the layout, the relationship of the land to the horizon, the way the sun flows, the way the wind flows, and things like that. The land itself isn't that bad, but if I were there today and you said, Jack, there's no house yet, where are you going to build your house? The orientation of the house, the positioning of the house, uh, and many things would be different than it is. So I am now using these models to get as close as I can, uh, using the, the, the resources that I have to what they are doing. But if I were to go out and evaluate property, which I'm actually going to do tomorrow on that little land thing I mentioned, I'm going to go up and take a look at it, the way I'm looking at lots today is a thousand percent different than the way I looked at a lot nine years ago. And uh, I think that there's a huge case, if you're looking at buying land in the future, homesteading and things like that, to invest heavily in permaculture knowledge because you're going to make smarter buying decisions. So... Can I tell you that everything I do is always spot on, 100% right? The answer is no. I screwed a lot of stuff up. I got a beautiful place. I'm very happy with it. I'm happy living there. And if I had it to do over again in the particular uh, scenario I was in, it was the best thing I could find, and it's got a lot going for it. With a longer, because remember, I had a a, a niece and a nephew-in-law that I was basically putting in as tenants, and that made buying this property at the time a very optimal cash flow scenario for me to do. It made it a great time to invest, so I had a time limit. Had I had, let's say, two or three months to evaluate at a deeper level, like I've done shows about, I would have come up with probably a very different solution to my problem back then. So... The big lesson here is no matter how much we think we learn, there's more to learn. And I bet you, if I do everything right based on my knowledge today and build a house or build a homestead somewhere else or just build uh, a system somewhere else, in five years, I would be able to go back and tell you a hundred things wrong with that system, so... Uh, I love these things like Sepp's videos and, and Bill Molson's videos and Jeff Lawton's videos because they take us forward. But even like uh, Mollison and Lawton say in some of their lectures, their students are moving a hundred times faster today because they already know all the mistakes they made and they're going beyond them uh, so quickly it's unbelievable. And, and Lawton's like, I can't, I can't wait to see what like a third or fourth generation of students from here when I'm an old man, what they're doing and how fast they're moving. He said it actually is kind of scary how this knowledge accumulates and goes forward. So the short answer, no. The long answer, I wish I had because I would have probably made some better decisions and I hopefully will make some better decisions going forward. But I do think there's a lot of advantages to mountain land, but the orientation of the slope relative to the sun is very, very important. And while I have a good portion of my property that works for me that way, I have a major portion of my property that does not because I did not understand that fully at the time. Let's take another call.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Rebecca in Fort Worth, also known as Sunnybrook, on the forum. And I am calling because I have done a major no-no. I bought a round composter ball and um, was doing all the good things. And I noticed some fruit flies, and I didn't like those. So I added diatomaceous earth to it, and I think I killed all the good bugs along with the ones I didn't want. And I have had no luck in trying to reestablish the composting um, I've added green materials I've added the um, brown materials and doesn't seem to be helping so other than dumping it out and starting over have you any suggestions on how to restart my composter Thank you love the show bye
1: Well, the answer is you're probably better off dumping it all out and starting over with a new batch of compost, and you've probably got some things out of whack there. But DE shouldn't stop the composting process. Uh, There's plenty of microorganisms small enough that DE shouldn't permanently shut down that system. The way you turn off or deactivate DE is with high levels of moisture. So the best thing you could do with the material you have there now is spread it out in a single layer on the ground, soak the hell out of it, Uh, with a garden hose, and you'll basically make that Uh, DE become inert. You'll wash it away. It will no longer uh, serve its purpose of getting into exoskeletons. And then you might want to pile that stuff up on a pile and leave it there for a while and wait till you see uh, activity in it again. Uh, And then you can use it as kind of a mulch or an amendment to compost or something like that. It's not poisoned in any way, shape, or form. You could probably eat it and it wouldn't hurt you other than if there's some other kind of uh, problem in there. But DE is not a toxin to human beings at all. It's a toxin to invertebrates. And anything with an exoskeleton. Uh, it, it is bad for earthworms. It's bad for bugs. It's bad for arachnids. Okay? You don't want to use it indiscriminately, which is kind of what you did there. On the whole fruit fry thing in your uh, in your uh, your compost bin, if you have any kind of insects in your compost bin, just leave them alone. Don't worry about them. They're not going to hurt anything. It's great that they're in there because that means they're not somewhere else where you don't really want them. I just wouldn't worry about it. Um you know, your, your compost bin is not going to be what makes your garden, uh, susceptible to pests. It's actually going to very much fortify it by improving nutrition and fertility of your soil and feeding your soil. So, I, I hear this all the time. There's a roach in my compost bin. What well, there's a cricket in there? There's, there's worms in there. There's flies in there. There's black soldier fly. It's all good. It's, I don't care what's in there, keep throwing crap in there and keep composting it. Uh, you also find those ball things work okay, but they're not my favorite way to do compost. Uh, but for small amounts that you're doing for basic amendments, it'll probably work. I would start over, uh, and I would just soak the living heck out of the stuff that you already have. I would not discard it. I don't think it's going to harm anything once you've done that. Soak it down, rake it up into a pile, leave it sit there, and wait till you have some level of, uh, of animal activity in there, some kind of invertebrate activity in there to tell you that it's okay, and go ahead and use it as a soil amendment, and you'll be fine with that. Uh, let's go ahead and take one more call and wrap up for this Friday. Hey, Deck,
3: Adam from Boston. Uh, about a year ago, I called about uh, refinancing. He gave me the answer, which was take the rate because you can't beat it. And I did. I saved a bunch of money. And uh, we've been through a whole bunch of economic turmoil, and I just got to call. The rate's even lower now, so I'm going to refinance again. But the thing that drives me crazy is this process I went through. I didn't need an appraisal. It was all done electronically. I mean, it took about two days for the application, and I'll be closing about a week later or so. I mean, it just seems like nothing has changed in terms of our willingness to lend money to people to buy houses. Uh um, anyway, I'm just curious of your thoughts if you're seeing that across the board or if I'm just in some unique spot here with this blind lender or maybe I should be concerned. I got a 15 year fixed at 3.75, no points, no closing, no appraisal. Uh sounds crazy, but it is what it is. So anyway, thanks for everything you do. Just curious about
1: thoughts on this. Well, what you're seeing there isn't that it's easy to borrow money to buy a house, right? They're not loaning you money to buy a house. They're refinancing a loan that you already have, that you've already used to buy a house to keep your business. The reality is this. Banks are not really in the business of sitting on money. They're in the business of loaning money. That's how they expand uh, the, the system. That's how they increase uh, money. That's how they increase uh, their own cash flow. That's how they create money. That's how they make money, by loaning it. So... In an environment like this, you've held your house for, a, for quite a long period of time. You've been through the, the, the recession. You're paying all your bills. You're the best risk a creditor could have. So they are deathly afraid that they're going to lose your business, even if it goes down a point or two, to some other competitive lender who's going to see that you are a solid risk. They're making sure you don't go away. To them... There's no risk at all here. All they're redoing, doing is reducing the interest they're charging you. It is a new loan, but there's a fee for that. So they make the fee, so they make a little upfront cash that they can put in their little multiplying machine. Um, and they they know... The, the abs- it doesn't even matter to them what your credit score is or anything like that unless something recently has happened to indicate uh, that you're a risk. And think about it this way. If I'm your lender and I'm already predisposed to cutting your interest by a point and you're coming into financial trouble, you're still you're going to default one way or the other. If I cut your payment, you are actually less likely to default. And since you have a track record with me of paying me for years and years and years, well, then I have all kinds of motivation to rubber stamp you through. Trust me, trust me. If you went to buy a new house right now and went to a new lender, you would go through all kinds of crap to get a loan, And they would really, really evaluate things. Even if you use the same bank because the situation is changing. They know that you, living in that house where you are, Right now, and since you started the, the business relationship with them, have demonstrated the capability of making those payments on time, month after month after month. They know that even though one of the worst financial crises we've seen in modern times has occurred, you've continued to make your payments. They're preserving your business. They're not giving you a new loan. In reality, the re. Uh, redoing the terms of the current loan in a way that's more favorable to you to ensure that they keep your business going forward. So is there still a lot of shenanigans in the home loan business? Yes. Is there still possible to get what you would call a liar's loan? Yes. Is that what you're seeing in a refinance? No. How do you decide to refinance? If you can save a significant amount of money and whatever fees they're going to put into it is paid back within a year, you do it. Anything you can do to pay less and still continue to erode the, the underlying uh, you know, uh, balance of your home, great. When you can get into a 15-year like that, absolutely, unless you currently only have three years' worth of payments and you're refinancing the 15 years. you got to do some basic underlying math, but if you refinanced a year ago, you've only paid one year off, and they're going to cut your interest rate again? Take the savings, roll it in, take that extra money and use it to fortify your life. It's just basic common sense. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.